Welcome to Leadership Lessons. I'm Todd Gray, the Executive Director for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Leadership Lessons is a program where we talk to faithful leaders who are making an impact for the gospel. Jim, welcome to Leadership Lessons. Thank you for taking the time to join, and let me ask you some questions. I appreciate it. Oh, looking forward to it. I appreciate the opportunity. So I, I know you pretty well. I've known you for a lot of years, but I don't. I want everybody else to know you as well. So here's some questions just kind of aimed at helping folks to get to know you a little bit. Uh, good, quick, short answers. Where did you grow up? Grew up in Portland, Oregon, West Coast my whole life. Was it beautiful where you grew up? Did, oh, it was breathtakingly beautiful. Green. We were on the uh, west side of the mountains, go to the beach. Water's cold, but it was beautiful there. Wow. And what kind of hobbies or activities did, did you do as a, as a kid, things you were involved in? Well, I was really involved in sports, played football, basketball, track and field. Uh, never made it to the pros. I guess you can't believe it, but <laughs> I enjoyed it very, very I mean, much. Obviously, someone missed your raw talent. I think that was it. They just weren't there when uh, I showed off the best. What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were when you were a child? You know, it was interesting. I, I thought I wanted to go in the military, but I also wanted to be an engineer. My undergraduate degree was in aeronautical engineering, and I had uh, plans to go work for Boeing uh, company up in Seattle. And that took a whole different track, I tell you. That's kind of that's kind of interesting. That I mean, to, you know, most kids want to be a, a fire a fire truck or a police officer. You know, one of those one of those two, and and. You, you want to be a fire truck, then you want to be a fire man or a fire person. <laughs> so, how old were you when Jesus became more than just a name to you? I was 17 years old, junior in high school. Things I thought were going really well. And all of a sudden, these kids from this group called Campus Life started talking to me. And I, I was not a good prospect. I bought tickets to things. I said, no, thank you. wasn't interested in Jesus. They invited me to a Christmas party. This was Christmas of my junior in high school. And when I went to the party, because I went kind of out of guilt, because I turned down so many, I said, there's something different about these kids, something very different. In that January, the assistant leader of the group came by and talked to me, told me what the difference was and led me to the Lord. I was not interested and <laughs> changed my life completely. So I was 17 wow. years old. 17 years old. How did you meet your wife? Well, that's an interesting story. I don't probably have time to tell, but it was at a, uh, a function at the base of Station at Minot, North Dakota. Our uh, wing commander, the head of the base, was had a farewell. We really liked him. So a bunch of us went over to be a part of that. And she was the sister of the wife of a guy I was very close to in the squatter. And that's uh, an officer's club function is where I met her. So Minot, North Dakota, I understand Minot as a as an Air Force base is more like a punishment than it is like a, <laughs> I mean, I've told us one of the coldest places in the country and not a lot yeah. happening around Minot. It's at 42 below, keeps out the riffraff, freezing's the reason, you know, all those, it was cold. Uh, yes, it was a great assignment though. Uh, it really was a great assignment. That's awesome. So um, you and your wife, you have four children and nine grandchildren, I think you shared with me, but you are also involved in foster care and you've been involved. What made you want to get involved in foster care? Well, I think for me, it was uh, the joy of our own kids. But my wife, uh, even before we had kids, she knew one day she'd want to foster. And we loved our own kids so much. And so when the time came, they were growing up and moved. They said, let's check into Sunrise because I had uh, heard from them many times, been to their briefings, and we got involved in the process. We have probably fostered uh, a short term, probably half a dozen kids. And we had two girls for a little over two years. Uh, what a huge blessing. But we had the time, we had the resources, and we wanted to continue being involved in the lives of kids. So 
And Jim, you get to see those two little girls actually become adopted, find a permanent home. Is yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And we knew the family because that family had done respite. So we, in a sense, are almost kind of like pseudo grandparents to them. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Uh, now, folks who were at the convention last year in um, Elizabethtown, Severance Valley, they mm -hmm. saw you talk about an organization or group, a Kentucky Baptist group called Friends of Life. And we have a celebration coming up. Um, but you're pretty active in pro-life causes. What what made you want to engage that particular issue? Yeah, I, I think it had a lot to do with the birth of our first son. Uh, when he was born, everything seemed normal until about a week. And we found out he had significant heart problems. And as I watched that, as we watched uh, a couple of times almost lose him, I really began to appreciate the significance of the life of a child, how wonderful it is, what a blessing it is to the family, what a heartache it is when you lose them. And we said, this is important. And the more people that can begin to understand that, that abortion isn't an issue of convenience, an issue of life, uh, then maybe we can make some a, a bigger difference in some of these lives. So it really started with the, the birth of our first son. Yeah. life little life is well you're very involved we appreciate your leadership i was in frankfurt yesterday for the family foundation rallies incredible gathering i was really amazed at the number of our elected leaders who are vocal followers of jesus they call on jesus by name it's not just kind of a i don't know it's not it's it's just more than just kind of a belief in god they're they're, they're true christ followers and then the, the pro-life issues that are being addressed the the efforts being made to protect life are, are pretty incredible in, in Kentucky right now. Well, so you've, you're in ministry and you're a pastor at Calvert City First Baptist. You've been there for a good while. What other ministry positions have you held apart from the pastorate? Well, I started out as I retired from the Air Force in Shreveport. I became a single adult minister. I was there about four years while I was attending seminary. It was a large church. I had about 400 singles in that ministry. And I learned a lot about ministry and moved from there after about four years to First Baptist in Paducah where I was the Minister of Discipleship, and I think the last six months I was there was uh, Associate Pastor as well. And that's the point from where I uh, came to Calvert City First Baptist. And the, how did those positions, just real briefly, how did they kind of prepare you for the pastorate? Well, I think in the big church, it helped me understand a lot about the other ministries, because I got to see very large and productive ministries, the resources and tools. And when I came to First Baptist, I was a lot involved a lot with the staff work, but also the planning in the ministry of the church. Uh, it, it helped me understand things that sometimes when you started a small church, you don't really know, you've not seen before. So I was able to bring that perspective and that background here, and it was extremely helpful. Well, we're grateful for you. I've been at First Baptist a number of times and, and grateful for your ministry. Well, I want to talk specifically about your military career and your time in the Air Force. You retired Air Force. You achieved the rank of Colonel, which is uh, obviously very, very impressive. So how did you end up in the Air Force? How did that happen? Well, I think I mentioned earlier, I was uh, I, I liked the military. My dad had been in the Air Force before I was born, and my uncle was career Navy, and I just thought the world of him. Uh, just He was kind of like my idol, and that really began the journey. And then, uh, but I didn't want to be in the Navy. I didn't want to go on a boat. I wanted to fly an airplane. So I got in, connected with the Air Force and I actually uh, was able to get an appointment to the Air Force Academy. And okay. that really began the journey for me. So help me understand Air Force Academy, um, is that, that's post high school? Yes, it's a, it's a college. You graduate from there with a, uh, a bachelor's. I had a bachelor of science in aeronautical engineering. So it's school and military, uh, both. 
So do you receive a commissioning after graduating from from the the academy? And you, so you came into Air Force as an officer, second lieutenant. Yes, second lieutenant. And and um, so what what's it like to be a second lieutenant in the in the Air Force? You know, they used to they tease uh, second lieutenants butter bars. I think no matter what they say. Wait, wait, what did you say? Butter, butter bars, butter, butter bars, bars, because of the, the yellow. Uh, uh, gold uh, bars, but uh, it, I think it's the lowest position in the Air Force. <laughs> you have to earn your way back up. Uh, it's a learning process, and they know that. That's where most of your initial training occurs when you're a lieutenant. To get, uh, it took me, I didn't get my full qualification to be 52 until I was actually almost a first lieutenant. It just takes that long to wow. go through the training process. So you wanted to fly a plane, and then you ended up doing that. We're going to talk about your your plane in just a moment. I think we may even have some pictures that will show up at, at some point of it. Um, but what made you want to become a pilot? I mean, uh, I think I understand the, the, the military connection, your dad and then your, your uncle. But flying a plane, I think everybody kind of dreams of that. But the actual work involved and being able to be a pilot, man, who wants to do all that? Well, I think there's a little bit of romanticism. It's kind of cool, swashbuckling uh, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But as I told you, I, um, I, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer, so the two kind of connected. That whole aviation thing was uh, was interesting to me. Okay, so you just wanted to, did you fly anything besides, I mean, were there, did you fly other planes? I mean, the B-52 is huge, so folks who may not know what a B-52 bomber is, kind of describe that a little bit, maybe the size of it, anything that would help us understand that plane. Well, the wingspan is about 185 feet, so it's about two-thirds of a football field in, in width. Uh, it weighs about fully loaded, just under half a million pounds. It has eight engines, can go for 10, 12 hours uh, on, on a load of fuel, and it drops or shoots just about anything in the Air Force inventory. Jim, it seems like you ought to fly something small, like a Cessna, you know, like a private plane, <laughs> before, you, before you fly something that's almost the size of a football field. Well, it, it is it is a challenge at first. <clears throat> we start in pilot training with a, a, a tandem airplane, little uh, twin-engine jet. Then we go into the T-38, which is a supersonic trainer, and that's just playing a lot of fun. That is a great airplane. Uh, and then you go into training, and it's kind of the needs of the Air Force. Where does the Air Force need pilots? And that will often dictate where you go. I, I was looking for a C-130 because I wanted to land on the dirt and wear sunglasses and do right. all that. But the need of the Air Force was B-52s, so that's where I ended up. So, I, I, as you know, I pastored at, at um, Oak Grove, Fort Campbell, uh, for 11 years. There's a small Air Force contingency at Fort Campbell, but C-130, C-130s were all the time flying over our, and CJ-5s, that, I mean, that massive mm -hmm. cargo jet would fly over our house. I think, I'm not sure it's going to get over our roof before it gets to <laughs> us, but then it, it finally would kind of kind of go up. So um, we talked about your plane a little bit and why you want to become a pilot. So you were in the military. What years were you in? I went on active duty in 1977, retired at the end of 2000. Okay, so Desert Storm was part of your experience. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was that like to be in during a, during a, a wartime? Well, it was interesting. Uh, just before that started, when uh, when they invaded Kuwait, they called on our base, and I was one on the senior one of the senior crews. We did some cruise missile testing to to uh, just make sure we understand how those operated. And that mission actually went to an older version of the B-52s. Just before the uh, air war ended, they called our base in Texas and said, we want to send a bunch of you over there. And we were getting ready to go when the air war stopped and things pretty much uh, concluded over there. But 
it was kind of funny. Nobody wants to go to war. Nobody wants to have to do that. But I, everybody was willing to raise their hand and say, if somebody has to go, I will go. And that yeah. was a great spirit in the troops. When it's called on, when we're calling, we need it. Uh, we want to go. We want to be a part of that. And Jim, so many, so many correlations between military life and and the the church and the mission of the of, of the of the church. Um, so you were following Christ at that time. Were you a serious believer while you were during your military time? I, I was. I, I have to go back just a second. Say one of the great influences in my life. Two great ones was uh, Master Life uh, when I took that in in Maryland, and then uh, the Navigators. They yeah. were instrumental in my discipleship, and that really changed how I lived, I guess, as a Christian. And it's funny, when, when I told our pastor that we were looking at going into the ministry, he said, just wait and see what the Lord does, how he, how he leads you. And that was 1985, and it was probably uh, 1999. We said, okay, it's time to go. It's time to go into ministry. But that well, whole process, yes. So folks who are not familiar with Navigators, Dawson Trotman started that uh, organization out of his own life of discipling military personnel, Navy um, uh, sailors and, and airmen and others that he would spend time with. He would have he would have eight or ten guys over at his house and, and just disciple them. They would read scripture together and memorize verses, and he just called it working with some guys. But now we would call it one-to-one disciple-making or and mm-hmm. had a, a, an incredibly huge uh impact and, and ministry and then the Avery Willis, the the Master Life course that you're that you're describing. Mm-hmm. So when you were in in active duty and preparing for the possibility of going into war, uh, what was that like for you as a Christian? What what kind of correlations were you seeing in your walk with the Lord uh, along with your 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 military calling and, and, and life? Well, how are they, kind of, they similar? I, I guess uh, as a Christian, you go where the Lord would call you to do the things he would have you to do. Sometimes they're not things you might choose to do, but he's behind you in those. He walks with you in those. And I think the same way as we thought about it, as my wife and I talked about the what seemed to be a very real possibility that we go into combat operations, we said we have to trust the Lord. We went into this knowing this was a part of it. We were honoring God by uh, being there and doing the things we did and that he would see us through. And if things didn't work out the way we might hope they would, uh, we had strong connections in the military. The, the, the community is very tight, and the Lord would take care of us. So, Jim, you're flying a plane almost the size of a, of a football football field. Did, and, and I asked you before, ahead of time if you had any harrowing experiences as a, as a pilot. And your, you know, your answer, go ahead and share what, how you answered that question. Well, I, I guess we had the ones that technically would be harrowing experiences, but we trained so intensively. Most of those things are things we've practiced in the simulator or talked about. In, in this one case, we were I was leading a group of B-52s from the island of Guam in the Pacific over to Townsville, Australia. It was kind of a, a military cooperation effort. And uh, as we were heading over there, I was doing air refueling behind the tanker, and the boom operator looks down and told us that every time we turned the airplane to the right, there was something leaking out of the wing on the airplane. He uh, did it, hung in there for a few more minutes. He said, it's red, it's hydraulic fluid. And we said, okay, now we discontinue the air refueling. We're not going to Australia because they can't fix it there. Now we got to figure out what's wrong and what's missing. And we kind of figured out that uh, one of the things that would happen, the wings are long, so they have tip protection gear, so the wings don't uh, bounce off the runway. We knew we couldn't lower that gear. It was stuck up. Plus, with hydraulic fluid leaking out of the wing, we might not be able to fly the airplane as easily. 
So we're walking through this whole process. We get back to Guam, we're too heavy to land. So we got to orbit up there and we're thinking, I hope the fuel goes out faster than the hydraulic fluid because there's nowhere else to go. But uh, again, the, the training we went through and the folks on the ground were ready for us. It turned out what could have been a really harrowing experience into something that almost was kind of routine. Yeah. I mean, I'm listening to that and thinking, okay, if I have car trouble, I just kind of pull over somewhere. But you're you're in a you're in this massive plane up in the air. You don't just kind of pull over. There's only a few places you can pull over. Period. And the Pacific Ocean is not <laughs> not one of those places. Did you was that the same as you said you lost an engine while you were while you were flying? Is that different? No, it's a different one. But so listen, let me, here, let me set this up. So I ask you this question ahead of time, and you said, "Yeah, you know, really not much harrowing." I mean, we lost an engine one time, and I—I I mean, I just got back from a flight from Florida, and we just had turbulence. And I told my wife, if if this second flight would have been our first flight, we wouldn't have ever taken the second flight. So turbulence turned me against against flying, but <laughs> I think losing an engine. Well, let me just tell you this. If you've flown a lot commercially, you may never know whether you lost that engine or not because the pilots may not announce that to you. But they are so well practiced, so well rehearsed in that kind of thing, they pretty much know what to do. If if we lost the number two engine, I knew what was connected to that. I knew what what uh, impact it would be to the systems in the airplane. So we And we worked around those things. The training was such that when we lost something, we knew what was impacted and we knew how to work around it. All right, so you're setting it up, Jim. So let's let's talk about ministry and make the the connections between your military career and and ministry. Um, you you could handle losing an engine or pouring out hydraulic fluid while taking a, a group of planes across the Pacific Ocean from Guam to Australia because your training your training just kicked in. You didn't have to. You didn't. You just had what you needed. Uh, and I, so you 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 must have felt exactly the same way. When you started pastoring a church and experienced your first, my tongue is deeply implanted in my cheek because I know the answer. You just, it's, it's, it's not, it's not quite the same, is it? No, it isn't. And for lots of reasons, you're dealing with people um, in, in a church operation. But I tell you, one of the things that that I drew from that in the military experience to ministry is that a pastor, you need to study what you do. You need to understand the ministry. You need to understand your, your faith, what you believe. You need to understand those processes. You need to understand people. Uh, my sense is that sometimes, I've kind of seen this in ministry, there are some things people don't ask about uh, very often, and it's easy just not to worry about those. I have found that the best way for me to feel comfortable and prepared in the minister is to keep studying and reviewing those things that I was taught when I started ministry. Okay, let's talk about some of those things. So, in in the in the Air Force, you you're the fundamentals of flying. You're learning the basics. You're practicing those in a smaller plane, a more advanced plane, to the place they give you your own your own plane. Uh, did that plane have your name written on the side of it somewhere? I mean, uh, not till I was a squadron commander. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, then they then they painted it on the side. Yeah. All right. So they give you Colonel Jim Yu, and they give you your 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 plane, and you're flying this plane. Um, but you you advanced up to it. And you had these mentors helping you along. So in ministry, uh, what are some things that you've intentionally done? Just name two, three, or four to be as prepared as possible for the uh, unforeseen things that are going to happen in ministry. How have you prepared? I think one of the things is having a close-knit group of guys. Uh, our deacons, one of the things we've worked at really carefully, really diligently, is to, to build bonds there so we can be absolutely open and, and transparent with each other about issues. I think that's very important. I mentioned uh, studying. 
Uh, and also, I uh, think something that's very important is to build relationships with the people. As a squadron commander, I, certainly I had authority over the troops, but if I wanted them to follow me, they needed to know me and trust me. They had to see that I was competent. They had to see that I understood the process. And they wanted to see that I could be doing the things they were doing. For example, I remember one cold winter in North Dakota, I went out with the crew chiefs and did a pre-flight in an airplane. It started about two in the morning and they'd scrape an ice out of the fuel uh, uh, ports uh, to get ready. And just being out there with the troops and being with them and what they do was a huge uh, uh, benefit and helped me in, in the uh, military. And that same kind of attitude helps in ministry. I like to go be with the kids. I like to, I'm a part of Awana. I teach a Sunday school class. I do the things that the folks are doing. So they know me, they see me there and get to know me. And that has just been a tremendous benefit uh, as a pastor. So you, when you did that uh, work with crew chiefs and, and the, the flight preparation, that put you there, what, two or three hours probably before you needed to be on the... Uh, a little more than that, a little more. Yeah. The crews might not show up till about six in the morning. So we've been out there about four hours pre-flight. So you, show, you show up to a warmed up plane that's ready for you to get in and... Yes, and sir. Fly, <laughs> right? So how did that change those guys when they saw you at two in the morning out there walking through what they do on, on a daily basis? How did it change your relationship with them? Uh, it, it, I guess one of the testimonies was we had a, a Christmas function and one of the senior NCOs told me, you know, the young list of guys probably aren't going to show up. That stuff's for officers. Well, we had the Christmas party anyway, but as we were getting in, the crowds were coming in, I saw young enlisted guys and they were rolling in extra tables because they felt connected. And that, that really touched my heart, but it just reaffirmed for me the importance of being with the guys and it's letting them see you and hear you uh, be present for them. That was that was a huge blessing for me. So the, the principle you're describing, Jim, is lead, you know leading by example. We have to do more in leadership than lead by example. But if we if if our example is not there, it makes everything else more challenging. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So who who influenced you as a leader during your Air Force time? Who 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 was that role model for you? Well, actually, probably the most significant role model I had was when I was a cadet at the academy. Uh, then Major Robert Seegers, he and his family kind of embraced me while I was a cadet. And he talked to me, he mentored me, he talked to me about the Air Force, he, he, he touched on some life issues for me. And I, I, he was probably the most influential people, person in my life uh, in, in the Air Force per se. But being involved and connected with churches, I had lots of uh, godly men and women that come across. But that guy, Robert Seegers, was uh, I still to this day remember the things he talked to me about. So, so make a connection for us. What are two or three similarities to flying a B-52 a bomber and pastoring a church. How's it? How's it similar? Well, you, you got to understand what you're doing, uh, understand the process and procedures, know the mission, know the purpose, know the activities. Uh, I spend a lot of time in sermon prep, so when I'm there, that it, it's competent, it's evident that I've made that uh, preparation. Uh, be connected with the people, be around where they are, talk to them, get involved and connected in their lives. And one of the things that's been a great uh, help for me, and I've seen the fruit of it, uh, again, reference to the navigators, is spending some time discipling guys. And it's a process. I started as a singles minister, spend about a year with a guy. That's roughly how it is. We spend time together. We have a curriculum we go through, but it's only like 24-week curriculum. We take a year to do it, building skills like uh, devotional time, scripture memory, uh, prayer, and then uh, talk about doctrine. What do we believe? 
th th those three things have been absolutely instrumental in my ministry. Well, and, and similar to your flight crew, you know, the folks that are beside you in a, in a plane as you're trying, I mean, you have to have a close relationship, a trusting relationship. They have to believe in you and you have to be able to lead, lead them as well. What, what could the church and those in ministry leadership learn from the military? I think one of the things is uh, organization. You know, one of the things that I'm looking back, it would be tough to be a, a 22 year old graduate of seminary and walking in to lead a church when you've not had any other life experience. And I'm not being critical at all, but uh, there's a lot of things that I brought that I brought to the military and organization of uh, you know, unit organization, et cetera. It was very helpful, but get to know your people, understand how your church works and why it works like that and stay connected with the things you've learned in, in uh, seminary. Stay current in, in, in your faith. Stay current of what's going on in, in, your, uh, in the ministry. Those things are all very helpful. Jim, the vast majority of Southern Baptist churches are normative-sized churches, and you're pastoring a normative-sized church. I think normative size is probably 150 or lower or 200 or lower, something like that in, in attendance. Um, probably 70, 75% of our churches in Kentucky are, are in, that, in that category. Uh, what are what are a couple of leadership lessons that you've learned as a pastor or in ministry that you've kind of had to learn the hard way? You're like, I, I wish I would have known that one before I had to make that mistake to learn it. Well, I can think of a few in the military, but in the in the ministry, uh, either one, either one, it's okay. Either either choice. Just give us an example. You, know, you you asked me the other day if there was an embarrassing one, and I think one that has stuck with me. Uh, I remember a meeting we had with my boss. I was a lieutenant colonel. He was a colonel. And I challenged something he said. And I learned right away, you never challenge the boss when he's on stage. Oh, when I became the boss, I, I appreciated that. I appreciate that process. So you have to use a little discretion when you work, especially with folks that are uh, over you, supervising you. So that, that was a, a great lesson. Follow behind that one. Remember the issue of uh, David's response to Saul, even though uh, Saul was looking to take out David, David said, this man is God's man. I'm going to support him until God moves him. And I had to learn that in my ministry role until the pastors called on. My job is to support him fully. Yeah. So those are some huge lessons. That can that be that can close. Be. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I love those guys who who have the who have wisdom and they just learn from everybody else's mistakes. And unfortunately, I've had to make most of my own. Uh, but but pain's a good teacher, isn't it? Once you learn a painful lesson, you don't want to have to relearn it. Uh, one of our past presidents uh, uh, mentioned something. He was one of my seminary professors, and he said something about a story about a church, a little miniature church that was in front up by the pulpit. And the new pastor came in and said, what the heck do we have that for? Let's get rid of that. That's not current. And then he found out why. The big lesson was never change anything until you find out why it is the way it is. Yeah. And that, that is a huge lesson. If, if all pastors understood that, they could avoid a lot of initial headaches. I will tell you that. Somebody should have written that down right right now. And, and man, I, I instantly went back to a major mistake I made in my first pastorate. And if I would have just asked why, I, I, I probably would not have done what I, what, what, I, what I did. Hey, a couple of, uh, you, you're a learner, a reader. Uh, what are a couple of books that have helped you grow as a leader? Anything come to mind there? Anything stand oh, out? Uh, again, my Navigator background, one of the most influential books in my early uh, life was a book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness. Yeah. Simple, book. Uh, simple principles, but huge. And the follow-up to that is this book, uh, The Discipline of Grace. That's kind of the next level. Okay. I would use that with the guys that I would uh, disciple. And then uh, uh, another one, uh, 
Honesty, Morality, and Conscience by Jerry White, another half press book. Some tremendous principles, particularly the one about building, uh, uh, I guess, the, the principles you guide your life by, building convictions, tremendous guidance in there. And then, of course, uh, Dr. Whitney's book on uh, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. And Jim, you just finished your you just finished your doctorate. Did you do that in spiritual disciplines or Christian formation? Yeah, it's called biblical spirituality, but that's basically it. Yes. Yeah. What a man! What a blessing to get to just kind of dive into those those resources. Um, we talked about a role that a mentor has played in your life. How did that How did that mentor relationship begin? I, th- I think here's the here's the why behind that question. I think every young minister and even middle aged ones would love to have a mentor in their life, but they just may not even know how to how to. You know, if it doesn't just happen, if nobody kind of picks them out and says, let me invest in you, how, how did your mentoring relationship begin that you mentioned? Well, I, I think it began for me at the academy with the major that I was in one of the classes he taught. Uh, but I, I think also, I, I'm going to maybe go a little different direction. I think one of the responsibilities as a pastor is to begin looking for those guys. Yeah. Uh, uh, we did a book uh, called, uh, let's see if I can look at the title of it, it's called Discipleship Essentials. And one of the things that the author said was, take a look around you and see those guys who seem to be trying to do their best, who are pressing on, and go to connect with them. And that's how I found the guys that I discipled. I'd, I'd sit down and talk with them, say, this is what I'd like to do, I went to them. And that, that that's something I think pastors can do. Rather than waiting for the knock at the door, go knock on their door. Jim, when I, there were two questions that I would ask people about discipling, and the first one was, have you ever read the uh, anybody? Has anyone ever showed you how to read the Bible and get something out of it? Mm-hmm. And of all the people who have ever asked that question, only one person said yes, so no one had taught them. The second question was, would you be interested in someone showing you how to read the Bible and get something out of it for yourself? And their answer was telling. Some guys would say, yeah, you know, someday, maybe down the road when I have some time, I would I would love to do that. Uh, he's just saying, I'm, I'm not interested, at least not right now. But the other guys would say, "Man, I would love for someone to teach me how to read the Bible and get something out of it." And and that was that was a guy you could probably work with and and invest in. Well, here's some questions just for fun, okay? okay. How did the How did the Super Bowl go for you? Well, you know, I, neither one of those are my teams. I'm a Vikings fan, which means I'm disappointed a lot. <laughs> you're, an, <laughs> you're, an, you're an unhappy fan. <laughs> I'm a Seahawks fan because I grew up in the in the uh, West Coast, but. Uh, I think it went well. That last two minutes was kind of hairy, but I have to I have to go back to my beginnings. When I played football in high school, my favorite team was the uh, LA Rams, and Roman Gabriel was the quarterback. Wow. And it, until uh, Fran Tarkenton beat the Rams, I was a Rams fan. So I kind of kind of was leaning for the Rams. So you were able to make a, a personal connection there and celebrate a victory. So I've already <laughs> asked about your most embarrassing. Um, uh, well, uh, this was military. Do you have an embarrassing ministry moment? I mean, anything has in all these years of leading churches and working on staff, has anything embarrassing ever happened to you that we could all enjoy a good laugh over? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm trying to think of one. I remember the first time I used my tablet and the tablet recycled. Well, there you go. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had no you're idea. You're a preparation guy. You're not a guy that just wings it. No, uh, no. And so I said, maybe it would be wise to have a printed copy of your notes nearby. There's good lesson. <laughs> lesson well learned. One one life experience that you hope to never have to repeat. Anything at all. Yeah. You hope, I, I hope I don't have to do this again. Oh wow. 
Gosh, there's probably a few. Uh, you, you caught me cold with that one. Sorry. Uh, did you have the, well, I want to ask about the vaccine. Uh, I'll just get you the next question. Uh, what do you miss most about your time in the Air Force when you got out and, and adjusted to civilian life? What was the hardest part for you and what do you miss the, most now? The community, when uh, we would have big inspections, open the door in the morning, go to work and 20 other doors down the, the road are open at the same time because everybody's going in there. The wives took care of the wives. Uh, the, they were just, if somebody was gone, like when I went to uh, Guam in, in the middle of November, it was sunny there, but it was snowing in North Dakota. Yeah. Uh, the guys came over and, and dug out my wife and took care of her. I miss that kind of connection very much. Well, I mean, and that's, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I would think that, I mean, you were a colonel when you retired. As a colonel, you're not, you're not saluting many people, but almost every, almost everybody is saluting you. Did you, I mean, was there an adjustment at all of just kind of like, hey, you're just normal Jim going to Walmart now? Did, was that a difficulty at all? No, it probably really wasn't. And it probably had a lot to do with my connection with many of these folks in the church, because folks yeah. that I served with were in the church. But one of the things that was scary, uh, really scary about being a colonel, is I used to look at those guys that, that wore those eagles and said, boy, those guys are so smart. They know so much. And then I got there and said, I must have missed that class, because I, I could feel the things I didn't know. I could understand there were so many things I didn't really fully appreciate. And sometimes a little scary because everybody's looking at you like you got the answers. And I'm thinking, I'm really not sure what to do here. Hey, so, Jim, that's really interesting you said that. So there's there's this thing out there and you may have heard of it's called it's called the imposter syndrome. Have you heard of the imposter syndrome? Uh, probably another name, but I think right. I know what you're talking so about. So at least 60 percent of executives would say it's their greatest it's their greatest struggle and the imposter syndrome is kind of that little voice that says you really don't belong in this role and you know that and pretty soon everybody else is going to know it as well that 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 you're kind of an, an, an imposter what's funny about it is that almost every leader wrestles with that at some point and that's a little bit of what you're describing that you reach that place of of, of top leadership and military ranks you're like man i thought those guys do a lot more i don't think i know that much mm -hmm. yeah well, that's where team building comes in. If you get and work with guys that will be on your team that will help you, that fills in a lot of it. I think sometimes in the military particular, maybe it'd be true in the pastorate too, you can feel like I'm supposed to be this way, and you try to fill that role like I don't need anybody or I don't need to help. Yeah, uh, That couldn't be any, anything further from the truth. You need all those people to speak into your life. The higher up you go in leadership, the less, the more difficult it is to be critical of other leaders. And people who are the most critical of other leaders are are revealing they've probably not led very much at all. Yes. Leadership is difficult. Um, uh, outside of salvation, what is one of the greatest gifts or one of the favorite gifts that someone has ever given to you? Something that someone gave you that just really meant a lot to you. I guess uh, when I retired from the Air Force, I got, I think I can maybe even show it to you. There's a, there's a little disc off the, uh, I didn't think about this one earlier. As a little disc was on the control uh, handle of the uh, B-52. It just said Boeing B-52. You can't get those anymore. You can't buy them anymore. And one of the guys went out of his way to go to the Boeing company and buy that for me. Wow. That really, that really touched me because it was a junior guy to me, but he just said, I appreciate your leadership and, and gave wow. that to me. You'd admit a lot in his life. If you could have coffee with any Old Testament character, who would you choose and why? Okay, first of all, I'm not a coffee drinker, so we have <laughs> something else. <laughs> but, okay, but I get the point. Hi, <laughs> sweet tea. I get, I get the point. I, I, I think one of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Deuteronomy. I'd like to sit down with the, uh, 
Moses and say, what was it like leading these people? What was it like to deal with all that? He said, I love the book of Deuteronomy and the issues, and that's probably the guy I would pick. He would say, Jim, remember that time that you lost an engine over the Pacific? Just imagine if, if uh, instead of losing one of eight, that you lost seven of eight, and then try to land that land that plane. I'm sure he would describe it in a way you could understand it. Uh, what do you hope people will say about you after you after you leave this life? I hope that I made a difference in their lives. I hope there's some guys that look back and say, I am where I am walk with the Lord because of that relationship in my life. He, he made a difference in my walk with the Lord. I believe that's I believe that's uh, that's going to happen if you you left if you left here today, Jim. There are already folks that would make that make that statement about you. Thank you for taking the time to join Leadership Lessons. Thank you for your service to to the Lord through His local church, to our country, uh, through your time in the in the Air Force. And thank you for your your friendship. I'm I'm grateful that you are Kentucky Baptist. Well, thank you, Todd. Thanks for what you've done for us here at Calvert. Appreciate it. Can I pray for you? Yes, sir. Please. All right. Dear Lord, thank you for Jim, and thank you for First Baptist Church, Calvert City. Thank you, Lord, for how you take every experience of our life, and you shape us to be the, the person, the leader, the, the laborer that you've called us to be. May your blessings abide on Jim, on his wife, and on their family, and on that on that church. We pray the best days of Calvert City First Baptist will be out in front of them and not behind them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening to Leadership Lessons. This program is made possible by the generous contributions by Kentucky Baptist through the cooperative program. For more information about the Kentucky Baptist Convention, go to kybaptist.org. And for news about how Kentucky Baptist churches are making a difference, go to kentuckytoday.com.